From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. Coping with the death of a loved one during the holiday season can be difficult, and there are no rules as to how it should be done. We sit with two experts who give us some tips on how to handle grief during the holidays. We're all heading to that final destination, and it's never too soon to begin contemplating how you want to meet it. Charity Howard has the pleasure of sitting down with a World War II veteran who just turned 100 years old. During the Hitler breakthrough of the Battle of the Bulge, they gave us ammunition for the smallest rifle that Uncle Sam had. All that and more, straight ahead on Bridging Philly. This is Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. We are now entering the holiday season. It is a time to gather with friends and family and catch up and reflect on old memories. But as we prepare to break bread with one another, we are reminded that there will be many empty chairs at many tables this year, some for the first time, as families straddle the line of having gratitude and dealing with the loss of a loved one. It's not an easy subject, but my hope is that someone finds comfort in this discussion and hopefully can come away with tips for ways to cope or better handle this holiday season. Joining me for this discussion is Nyla Francis. She is a grief guide and a deaf doula. She's also a speaker, a poet, a writer, and an ordained interfaith minister. And with Nyla is Ravina Duftery. She is one of the creators of the Thread Installation in Philadelphia's Rail Park. It's a temporary public art installation to hold space for grief and connectivity. Thank you both for being here. Thank Thank you you so much for having us. Now, you both, of course, bring unique experiences and talents to the world of uh, grieving. And I find them both pretty fascinating. Nyla, I do have to ask you, um, I think I know what a grief guide is, but I'm not quite sure what the death doula is. What exactly is a death doula? So a death doula or death midwife provides holistic support to the dying. Mm. So we are there to assist physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually to help them have a dignified death, to honor their wishes, and also really to help people prepare for death, whether that's, you know, preparing the paperwork that they might need or sort of coming into reconciliation with challenging relationships, things they might want to do, legacies they might want to leave behind. In some ways, it's a death midwife, but you're really honoring the full spectrum of living because it's never too early, I say, to engage the services of a death midwife because we're all heading to that final destination and it's never too soon to begin contemplating how you want to meet it. That's so Interesting. You know, we know what doulas do. We know what midwives do. They help bring life in. But I guess we never really think about, you know, the the end and the and the, the final our our final breath that we're going to take, especially if we know that it's coming, to prepare for that and to 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 have someone actually help us through that. How did you get into that work? So I was present at the death of my dad in 2012. He died in St. Lucia in a hospital, not under the best care. 
Um, but just being present to his death, being in the room with him in those final days mm. and seeing how together with his siblings and a cousin, we were able to create such a beautiful experience at a time that was also deeply challenging and sad, just stayed with me. I never thought in that moment, I didn't even know there was such a thing as death doulas. So I never thought, oh, one day I might like to help people cross this threshold. But I just remember in his final hours, how we all gathered around him and we were singing and praying and you know, my one aunt just kept waving her hands over him almost as if she was just kind of like smoothing the energy around him or whatever it is. It was just so incredibly beautiful to me and looking at his face as he was dying and seeing so much peace on it, even though he was deeply, profoundly sick, he had so many conditions ravaging his body. Mm. There was such a sense of peace I remember actually looking at his eyelashes like I'd never seen them for the first time and just being like, wow, he has such beautiful eyes. Like, look at him going wow. so tranquilly and with such surrender. Yeah. So that really stayed with me and I think planted a seed that ultimately led to this work. Wow, that's... Yeah. I, I definitely want to have lots of questions for you, Nyla. Um, so, but we're going to hold on to that. Ravina, I do want to talk with you about the thread installation. At Rail Park, it is very moving. Visitors are invited to sit on a bench in that booth-like structure, and they are invited to use a disconnected rotary phone to call, so to speak, their loved ones. What was the inspiration behind that? Yeah, thank you, and thank you again for having me today. Um, I think where I would start with the inspiration was the Wind Phone, which is an installation in Japan by Itaro Sasaki who was an architect um, who lost a cousin and wanted some kind of um, outlet for his own grief and to process his own grief and his own loss of his cousin. And um, the wind phone has become very um, kind of widespread and, and used in a very widespread manner because soon after that, the tsunami in Japan um, led to the death of 10% of the town in which mm -hmm. it's located. And so people have made pilgrimages to the structure to call loved ones and to process their community grief. And so we had seen, the team behind the thread had seen that in the media, and there have been a few different iterations of the thread in the United States as well, uh, mostly on the West Coast. And in most of those cases, the phone was remote. Um, it was in a forest or kind of in a removed location. and the team that we were working with really wanted to create an installation in Philadelphia and one where people could come and really be seen in their grieving. And so it is both sheltered and it is also public um, mm. because we do tend to, especially in the United States, grieve in a very isolated manner. It yeah. can be a very lonely and interior experience. Um, and people do come together and grieve at a funeral or a memorial service but grief doesn't leave after that yeah. memorial service, right? Um, people, again, the holiday season is coming up. People will be feeling their grief in, in different ways, their grief and their loss. Um, and grief is an experience that you um, hold for a long time, and it comes in waves, and it comes back after decades. And to be able to uh, have community around that and to be able to see one another grieving 
creates a collective around it. And so we were really excited to put together the thread so that people can come, you know, have an experience using their voice to talk to the person that they may have lost or who may be unreachable to them for whatever reason Mm -hmm. uh, and to be able to um, be seen in public doing so. What response have you gotten um, from people who have been in that space and, you know, picked up that phone and communicated or tried to communicate with a loved one? What have people been saying about that? You know, it's been really positive. I was really um, surprised that every time I've gone to visit the installation, people have been using it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in one instance, I saw an entire family who had lost a grandparent and, you know, every family member from the person who had lost their parent to their grandchildren were taking turns having a conversation with their grandparent. Um, I've seen, you know, people just randomly walk by and not plan to use the phone, but, you know, thought about a lost loved one or somebody who may have, you know, been unreachable to them because of dementia or, um, incarceration or any number of reasons, you know, other, other forms of displacement. And I think what has surprised me and what has surprised other people is the act of actually using your voice and of really embodying your loss, I think really makes it real for people. Um, we have a voicemail line where, um, people can call in, I'll, I'll share the line, but, um, we have a voicemail line and we hear, People will call in with their stories. People will call in with their feedback about the installation. And I think what I've walked away from the experience um, having gained is the insight that it's really needed, that we need more spaces um, you know, and more conversation about the losses that we have sustained as a community together and that we can't be in our living rooms bearing it alone because it's not just one person's relative or one person's um, miscarriage. There are other societal and cultural factors at play, and we are sustaining large numbers of losses. Um, And we have to be able to confront those together. And I think confronting the grief that we feel is, is one step in that process. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. Nyla, what do you think of the Threads space? As someone who helps people through their grieving process, is this something that you see as therapeutic? And, you know, I know it's a very unique way of of kind of going through the the grief process. What do you think about this space? I actually do believe it to be very therapeutic. And I've visited the Thread and sat with the phone. And it's so magical and powerful to me, sort of what the symbolism kind of evokes or the ritual intention of it. Here's a phone. I'm Mm going to pick it up. I'm going to dial this number. As soon as I sat down in that booth and I was going to call my mom's partner. So the year before my dad died, my parents were divorced Mm -hmm. and my mom had a partner and he died the year before. And I was going to call him and the tears just came to my eyes, just reaching for the phone knowing that that's who I wanted to talk to. I'm getting emotional just thinking about it now. And so I think it really does give your grief somewhere to go and gives you some way to engage your grief that feels maybe a little safer or less intimidating or overwhelming for people. So often people think, 
oh my gosh, if I just give in to my grief or if I take one step toward my grief, I'll be consumed and overwhelmed and I'll never recover from that. But if you can have sort of these micro moments or small contained pockets where you can just dip in and then pop back out, that really helps the journey feel a little less overwhelming. I can imagine people walking into that space and then not really knowing what to do, not knowing what to do with their feelings or emotions, not wanting to pick up the phone, maybe just sitting there, maybe just having a cry. Is there a right or wrong way to use that space? Oh, certainly not. I mean, I saw someone just walking around taking pictures of it for probably like a good 20 minutes. And I was like, she's scared to use it, but she wants to engage with it somehow. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, for me, I I can really understand that feeling. Um, It is scary. And yet people are compelled to pick it up and use it every day, which tells me something. Um, Before we actually put up the installation, you know, the first thing our group did was just buy a phone. Um, And we kind of stuck it in the center of the table of our first meeting. And we're just looking at it and (laughs) wondering about it. And at some point, I took the phone home and um, it probably sat in my like on my couch for two months, um, looking at me, taunting me, daring me to use it. And every single time I was like, I'm not doing it. You know, it's too scary and too intense. But one day I just woke up and felt compelled. Um, and for me, I mean, my, my entry point to this work, um, I mean, this isn't really my day-to-day job, but I um, lost my mother very young when I was seven. And so you know, grief and loss have, have always been a big part of my life. Um, I can't remember a time when grief wasn't somewhere in my consciousness mm-hmm. or, you know, the idea that, that someone that you love might not be available to you. Um, and it's interesting. I, I did um, a death doula training, actually, before I did all of this. Okay. Um, and it was the first time that I think I was really um, confronted with the idea of of my own death, um, but I was really surprised that there were other people in the um, group who were my age and had never lost anyone close in their life. And they were sort of preparing for the eventuality of their grandparents passing away. But for me, it's just been such a part of life. Um, My birthday is on Day of the Dead, so I feel like in some ways it is just written. Um, (laughs) But, you know, when I use the phone to call my mother, I mean, that was not a recent loss. You know, she had passed away more than 30 years prior. And I still found myself wanting to say things to her, wanting to ask questions, wanting to tell her a joke that I thought maybe she might find funny, you know. Um, And when we installed the thread and we had our opening, it was pouring rain, like the, the opening went well. And then there was the sky just, it was during those summer storms and the sky just opened up in the last 10 minutes and we're all scrambling and running around trying to pick up our grief coloring books and whatever else was strewn about. And at some point I just grabbed my umbrella and ran back to the phone and picked up the phone in the pouring rain and just called her and said, I think you would have loved this installation. I think you would love this installation. I think you'd be proud of me. And, you know, it was, it was a beautiful moment. And even for me who feels very steeped in this, I think you know, I recently lost a colleague and the first place I went was Thread just to talk it out. Um, you know, we have been, as a city, we have been through so much loss. There is not yeah. one person in the city who has not had some kind of loss in the last couple of years. Um, and 
So it's it's an opportunity to kind of get present with that and, and get to know what feelings are there for you. Yeah. You know, the holidays are they're they're difficult in and of itself. We're all running around and we're entertaining. We're gonna entertain and dealing with family members. Some family members that you only see once a year for a reason. <laughs> um, but for the most part, you know, the holidays are about getting together and having a good time. And before we started, uh, Ravina, you talked about somebody saying that they were happy, sad. And I wanted to talk about that, that I don't know if there is a guilt there with the holiday season as you're trying to have fun, you're trying to have gratitude, but you're also grieving and you're mourning. So I'm thinking there might be a sense of guilt when you're trying to have fun, or you find a little funny moment, and you're like, well, "No, I shouldn't have that funny moment. I am grieving," or, or you maybe you're having you're grieving too much. You're not having enough fun. And no one knows what to say, what to do, how much to say, how much to do during the holiday season. You know, is there a right and a wrong way to approach this? I always just say, let yourself off the hook. There is so much pressure to do the holidays a certain way. And when you're grieving, I tell people to give themselves permission to bow out of Mm. things that feel like they might be too much, too triggering, too stressful, too overwhelming, to scale back. If you don't want to put up a Christmas tree this year, light a candle, to find ways to weave your loved ones into your celebrations, whether that's having photos of them that you put out or you know, cooking their favorite recipes or listening to the songs that they loved or creating a moment where the family all shares stories or memories about them. You know, we, I think as a culture, the holidays are so much about the frenzy of doing all the things and accumulating all the gifts. And grief is such a process of slowing down and paring back And it can feel very disorienting and jarring to have that experience alongside what the holidays invites. And I really think people need to know that it's okay to do the holidays differently or to not do them at all. Hmm. Yeah, whatever whatever works for you. Yeah, yeah. And I think too for people with children, there's even the added pressure of like, but I want to make it special for them. And I understand that, but maybe this year you find different ways to do that if you're not feeling like, oh my gosh, I need to go out and buy all these gifts or we need to go to all the festivals or whatever all the holiday events are. But I also think it's important for children to see their parents, their adult companions grieving because part of why we are where we are as a society in this grief-phobic culture Mm. is because we have no models of grief. So I think for parents worried about like putting on a happy face and making sure the holidays are perfect, it's okay to express that you're sad or that you're missing someone right now or this year feels different or challenging or whatever it is. And maybe that will lead to some discussion and dialogue that can be really helpful to children to witness and be part of. Ravina, the happy, sad, um, that juxtaposition, I guess, if you want to say, of the rush, rush, crazy holiday season, but the slowing down of the grieving all smashed together. It's confusing, but it's okay to be happy, sad. Yeah, I mean, I think Nyla said it beautifully. um, And I think the only thing I would add is, I think as a culture, when we hear grief, we think sadness. But it is very, very multi-layered. And if you're experiencing 
a recent loss, maybe sadness and sorrow is at the top of your experience, but there's a lot of types of grief that aren't about bereavement. And it can be very, like your emotional reaction, your experience of the loss can be very um, multi-layered and complex. You might feel both sadness and relief, right? If you had a parent, for example, or somebody that you were caregiving for for a really long time, or you know, maybe you had a miscarriage, but you were also in deep, deep pain, right? So there's a lot of um, other emotions that can come up. And, you know, even with this recent colleague that just passed away, a lot of funny memories have been coming up for me. And I've been laughing a lot thinking about her. And, you know, it was a very unexpected passing. So definitely sadness was very much on the skin for me. Um, But it wasn't the only thing that was present as I was remembering her. And so I think I love what Nyla said about, you know, really giving yourself permission to slow down because when you slow down, you really are able to get to know what's coming up for you, what's going on, what is what is the shape of your grief, right? It might not look the way that we think grief is supposed to look. And, you know, I think that's just one thing that we invite people to do at The Thread, too, is to not um, believe that there is a right way. Yeah. But, um, you know, you might want to get on the phone and gossip about another work colleague, <laughs> you know, just the only person who will ever understand. You won't believe what she did, you know. <laughs> right, right. And, and that's OK, too. Um, and then I think time with family is so complicated for so many people at the holiday season. Um, and so there is no one size fits all with how to be with your family in um, the context of a loss. Uh, and maybe your entire family or your community didn't experience the loss the same way that you did. But if there is an opportunity to share and to let people in on how you're feeling and how you're experiencing the loss, um, and if there's a safe way to do that, I think it is a beautiful opportunity. Because depending on what, where your family is, families don't always come together and get together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think part of how we process grief is by doing it in community. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why Salt Trails puts on so much amazing programming. We're, you know, really excited about the thread because it's a way to um, experience it in a collective and and in community and looking into somebody else's eyes and witnessing them and being witnessed. Um, And then I think one of the, you know, for our team, one of our team members, Beth Jelinek, is a grief therapist and, you know, I am not. But we have talked a lot about how we want thread to be a useful tool during the holiday season as people are navigating a lot of these issues. And so um, we are actually hosting an event at the beginning of um, December. It's December 3rd. It's called Woven Together, an afternoon of grief and connection. And it'll be hosted at Asian Arts Initiative um, in, here in the city. And that will really be just a gentle afternoon of um, some guided story sharing and um, some community weaving that we'll be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, again, really trying to use the hands to move grief through the body, you know, through stories, through creating something together, um, witnessing one another. And um, so the event is free. And if you would like to register, you can visit our website at thethreadphilly.org or um, our Instagram page at thethreadphilly. Okay. Um, but yeah, so I think at an event like that, we are anticipating, obviously, that people will be coming with a range of different feelings, kind of post-Thanksgiving, heading into some of the other winter holidays, and and hopefully can create a container to provide a little bit of gentle support, community, and then we'll be walking to the thread afterwards um, so people can use the phone. Got it, got it. 
Nyla, on one of your websites, um, This Hallowed Wilderness, Yes. Uh, I was kind of perusing through there, and I saw what one of your clients wrote. Her name is Gail Anderson. Mm. And she wrote, it's often said that you don't know that you are drowning until someone tosses you a life preserver. Well, I knew that I was drowning in grief and realized that the preserver that I had been using for years just wasn't enough. That's when I found Nyla. I have walked with grief for a long time, but I was looking for someone with compassion, heart, grace, and understanding to help me learn to let go of the heavy load. I'm so grateful I connected with Nyla. How do you feel when you read something like that, when you connect with the person that you've helped and you're an intact life preserver, so to speak? Mm, I feel really deeply, deeply honored and moved all the time that people come to me and are willing to be vulnerable and be open and share the contents of their heart. I mean, I had a client earlier today and at the end of our session, we both just sat facing each other with our hands on our hearts. And I said, I just want you to know that I see you. And her eyes started filling up because I think so often in grief, what's missing is that compassionate witness is somebody who's going to be with you in the hard moments and not look away and not judge you and not try to give you some kind of pat solution, but just to say, I see you right now and I see that it's hard and I see that you're hurting and I am so here with you. So I, I never take it for granted. I'm deeply inspired by the people that I work with and the courage that they have to open up to me and to really look at their grief and to want to move through it so that they can live in a way that feels truer to who they are. Yeah, that that testimonial is actually one that's very dear to my heart. That was also a very, very special client. Yeah. 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 Well, in our remaining moments, I guess we can share a little bit more about how everyone can find you both in the work that you do. Perhaps they'd uh, like to learn more or even uh, get some help from you guys. Um, Nyla, how can people reach you and where can they find you? Sure. So I am at This Hallowed Wilderness is my website. That's the name of my grief and death midwife practice. And I'm also on Instagram at This Hallowed Wilderness. And I'm also a founding member of Salt Trails Philly, which is an interdisciplinary collective offering community grief rituals. And we are on Instagram and Facebook at Salt Trails Philly. Great. And Ravina? So you can find The Thread. Um, you can either go to our website at thethreadphilly.org um, or you can follow us on Instagram at, at thethreadphilly. Um, our voicemail line, which you can call to tell your story, to talk to a loved one. Um, it's a cold line, so we don't pick up the phone or we don't call back. Um, but you can also leave feedback about the installation. That's at 267-314-7161. For some people, they feel more comfortable doing that than sitting at the actual phone. Um, but your story will be listened to. Then you can also visit the rail park. Um, the thread installation will be there through the end of the year, the end of 2023, um, at which point it will be looking for a new home. And so if you're interested in bringing the thread to your community, you can contact us via the website. And yeah, we just really hope that everyone is able to experience it. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the work that both of you do. And um, here's to a society that's a bit less grief phobic, as you put it. 
Nyla. Yes. Cheers to that. Nyla Francis, Ravina Duftery, thank you so much for joining us on Bridging Philly. Thank you thank so you much. We appreciate it. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. History is not just taught in the classroom, and when you get a chance to get a true history lesson from someone who's lived it, you listen. Charity Howard had a chance to sit down with a World War II veteran as we hear from the latest Shara in the City. At the age of 100, Ben Barry is one of the last known survivors of the Battle of the Bulge. And of course, I had to meet him, so I took a trip to the Wesleyan Hans Living at Staples in Germantown, where he's now living, and he shared reflections of the past century and, of course, storming the beaches of Normandy to face down Nazi forces. You've been on this earth a very long time, and you just celebrated a very special birthday. Mm-hmm. Yes, my 100th birthday was September 21st, 1923. I was born, so September the 21st, 2023, here I is. <laughs> and yes. your eyes are bright. Everything about you just seems like, you know, you just enjoy life. Now, let's talk sure. about what you've seen. Well, I've seen from dirt streets, no street lights, seen no sidewalks, no running water. Outhouses up until this present time. Now I'm blessed to be in a one bedroom apartment, beautiful balcony where I can look out and enjoy Mother Nature. Amazing. Now, where were you born? I was born in Willow Grove, Pennsylvania. There's a little section where the blacks lived called Crestmont. It's still in existence today, and we do have a wonderful church there that's grown. Still a God-fearing man. Oh, by all means. With him, all things are possible. Him, I mean, the great God of the universe. You've been, of course, not only through war, but let's start with the fact that you were in the Battle of the Bulge. What was it like as a black soldier, uh, especially one that was so essential to the survival of everyone else around you? Well, at that time, we were in an all-black outfit. Uh, Officers were white. We had a captain and first lieutenant and second lieutenant. They were both uh, Caucasian white, but uh, the rest of us, from first sergeant on down, we were all African-American. How many were you? Well, in my outfit, there were 89 men, including the captain and two lieutenants, 89, just regular GI, so to speak. How old were you at that time? I graduated from high school at 19 and went right into the service. I got my draft notice in June of 1943, graduated, and then called to duty. As you served, was it better or worse than you anticipated? Being young, and anxious being drafted, the war would be over as soon as I got in it. I said, once I got in the Army, which was a job, I would end the war. I, myself. Didn't happen. It did not happen. So let's talk about what your experience was in the war. Where were you uh, stationed? Well, I did. The part I found that I didn't expect to find, being in a foreign country, being with strangers, We united as brothers before it was over. But yes, the the area I was in was in England. 
That's my first after I got overseas from the United States. But then uh, we knew it was going to be a war, evidently, because all our equipment, we start preparing it for waterproof in case when we landed in Normandy, if we couldn't get close to the Normandy beaches, we had to go from the ocean in the water, try to get to the beach and keep our vehicles from stalling out or getting wet. So at that place while we were in England, we prepared our vehicles to try to waterproof them. And uh, fortunately, it worked for many of us. Being in quartermasters, which I was, quartermasters did service. Whatever the Army need, quartermasters supplied it, whether it was gasoline, ammunition, food, water, whatever they need. Quartermasters saw that Uncle Sam's service army went through. They depended on us. We didn't get the recognition. We weren't on the front lines until (laughs) Hitler broke through, and they needed all the manpower they could get. And, of course, quartermasters was right there. We did our part. Many of us had rifles. We never had ammunition. But during the Hitler breakthrough at the Battle of the Bulge, particularly my outfit, they gave us ammunition for the smallest rifles that Uncle Sam had. But they said we could show some resistance, or at least the enemy would know we were there and they would fire upon us, which wasn't wasn't good, wasn't good at all. They said, go out there, show you some resistance. We were almost guinea pigs, so to speak. Our rifles, they gave us the ammunition. It was stated, and I believe them, it was the coldest season that they had in that part of the country, the Ardennes, going out. Of course, it had snowed, and it was pretty, pretty, pretty cold. We had on our olive drab uniforms. The Germans had on their white camouflage uniforms. So can you imagine who would be a better target against the snow than the Germans in their white uniforms or the U.S. Army in their olive drab uniforms? We were like a fly in a bottle of milk. Just against that snow in these olive drab uniform, we were definitely a target for the enemy. But here we are today to tell the story. So God had it so that we were able to survive that, and the Germans surrendered. What was that travel like, being in those little boats? Because we've all seen pictures of these men in these little boats fighting these crashing waves. We were able to drive the landing uh, ships, boats, up to the shore practically, they put down the landing gear, and we could drive off in our vehicles right onto the sand. This was 22 days after the battle. What did you see when you looked around you when you landed? The most thing that fascinated me was the German pillboxes that were dug in or cemented in. I don't know how they did them in the mountainside of the hills there at Normandy. And how we Americans... Army and other forces that were with us, how we were able to land on the land there at Normandy, it's remarkable. The Germans had a dead eye shot at us. They were camouflaged. They were dug into the hillside there, and with their pillboxes, wasn't much we could do. Our machine gun would shoot at them, but the bullets would just pop off the way those pillboxes were designed, and how we were able to capture that, conquer it, or whatever you want to call it, 
I have no idea other than the Lord being with us because the Germans certainly had the advantage on us as we were coming ashore. As the stories told, didn't help him out too much, did it, in the end? Not at all, not at all, (laughs) no. uh -uh. That's the story, it's... You're landing on the shores. You're trying to fight something that looked as though it was an impossible feat. Part of it is sort of grained into you because Uncle Sam had told you, and it's one thing they grained into you, especially once you got ashore, kill or be killed. And you keep that in mind. You don't want to be killed, so you don't want to take anyone else's life. But uh, when it comes to he or I, it's going to be he. When it comes down to it. Yep. Well, my Army experience wasn't one that was really shell-shocking or I had nightmares over. As I stated, being a quartermaster, we serviced the Army with supplies, whether it was food, clothing, ammunition, gasoline, whatever the Army needed, quartermasters supplied it for them. And that was our job, and they did a terrific job because very little that Uncle Sam needed that he did not receive thanks to the quartermasters. So what was it like when you came home? So many GIs, as I call us, they could come home. A lot of them didn't even know where home was. Shell-shocked and didn't recognize their loved ones that they left behind. Sorry to say, but they called them a basket case because their life was ruined, completely ruined. You were able to come home, make a life for yourself. What was it like having to start all over again? Well, it was quite an experience, but very much acceptable because Uncle Sam's army had a plan. You could join what they called a GI Bill, and I accepted it. I took a course, went to school under the GI Bill. I learned the trade of painting and paper hanging. Of course, it's 1945. Did you feel as though uh, you carried the war home with you? No, just being home and being to do what we were called to do, it didn't, thank you, Lord, didn't have any real lasting effects. I had a young lady I'd met right out of high school, and we'd become quite attached. She said she would wait for me, and of course, we corresponded during the war. And when I came home, certainly, she waited for me, and I was home not quite two years before we said, I do, I will. (laughs) And... uh, they say the rest is history because that was in 1946. Here we are now. Well, I don't know what year is this. <laughs> <laughs> 2023, here we be. <laughs> sure. Say that again. 2023, here we be. All right, girl. That's great. And I'm glad for this interview from KYW. You're amazing. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for your service. How much does it mean that people actually see you? And just really, truly, from the bottom of their hearts, are thankful for what you do. Certainly during this month, we've been treated extra, extra fine, given all kind of handshakes, meals, foods, kisses. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Worth it all. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. And let's do it again. Thank you for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Also, we're looking for the 2024 class of Game Changers. Nominations are being accepted right now. If you know a person or an organization doing positive work to uplift communities of color, go to kywnewsradio.com slash gamechangers and nominate them today. Winners will be featured on KYW and will be awarded at a special ceremony during Black History Month. For Sharaday Howard and our producer, Patty McMahon, 
I'm Raquel Williams. Be well.